Hey, good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Westbridge, and I want to say hello to those of you on our online campus. Thanks for participating through that venue. Hello to those of you in our parent viewing rooms. That's a great option if you have small children that you prefer to keep with you during the service. And uh, I got to tell you, what a, what a great baby uh, being up here dedicated. If my kids were that quiet when they were younger, we might have had 10 more. Uh, that's, that's amazing. Uh, Hey, real quick, before we jump into the talk this morning, this is the second week in a row that we're running into a bit of a parking issue. Uh, So just, uh, it's not a winter thing, it's a capacity thing, and so many of you are coming to the uh, uh, 1030 service here that we're starting to run out of parking places. That's a great problem to have. However... Uh, we want to make sure that we always have room for everybody that we're inviting. And so I want to just ask some of you, would you consider joining us at 9 a.m.? Because we've got a few more open seats and a few more open parking places. So if your schedule allows and uh, looking towards the future, and particularly as we move toward Easter, uh, we're going to be doing five Easter services on Easter weekend. We want to make sure we have plenty of room for everybody. But in the meantime, if you uh, would be able to make a shift in your own schedule and go, you know what, we could go to the 9 a.m. service instead of the 10.30. Uh, That would open up more seats for us at this service so that as people continue to invite their friends and family members and neighbors and co-workers, we want to make sure that we have enough room for everyone. So if that's something you could consider doing, that'd be super helpful. Uh, If not, no no worries, no guilt. Uh, Just one of those things that's a good problem to have. And so we're bumping back into some of these capacity issues and we want to make sure we've got seats for everybody. Uh, Now, I got to tell you, I recently purchased some very comfortable pants. Uh, that fall into a brand new clothing category called athleisure. It's a brand new word. And actually, this word just got put into the dictionary. Uh, In fact, the definition of athleisure in the dictionary is this, uh, casual clothing designed to be worn both for exercising and for general use. You might know this best as the yoga pants trend. No, I did not buy yoga pants, all right? It's men's athleisure, okay? Let me just put that out there. All right, so here's the deal. Uh, it's it's kind of crazy. This started around 2009. The market for this started to climb, and Business Insider called this the denim apocalypse. Like denim started to go down, people are wearing yoga pants and athleisure a lot more now. And one analyst for a market research firm actually gave this reason. He said this, the clothes are comfortable and they suit a fitness conscious lifestyle. However, there's this interesting piece of data, this uh, statistic that may tell a different story. Because the number of people buying yoga pants did not correspond to the number of people actually doing yoga. Shocking. In other words, a lot more people were buying and wearing yoga pants than were actually doing yoga. And uh, that, that uh, kind of tells this story that we, we tend to dress in ways that correspond with how we expect to live and not necessarily how we actually live. In fact, uh, we, we might not work out, but we like to dress like we do. And so, uh, full disclosure here, I got to tell you, as we've been going through this series, there are times in my life where I've taken that exact same approach in my relationship with God. Man, I really want to look the part, but I don't really want to surrender all the parts of my life to God, right? I want to look the part, but I don't really want to go through the sacrifice and the commitment that it takes to give Jesus full control, to give him control of the steering wheel of my life and do things his way. 
And that's what this series has been all about. This has been a series that we've been looking at and probably one of the most crucial series we've ever done as a church because the mission of the church is this, people helping people find and follow Jesus. That's what we want to do. We want to be a group of people who are helping other people find Jesus, discover what it means to receive the grace of Jesus, but then we walk with people as we discover together what it means to follow Jesus, to give him control of our lives, to say, Jesus is Lord. That means I'm going to give you control of the steering wheel of my life, and I'm going to do things your way. And here's what's awesome about this. That means we get this message that goes, hey, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. Like, you don't have to do anything, change anything to show up and to come to Jesus. And this is what's awesome. Jesus loves you and accepts you as is. But he loves you too much to leave you as is. He wants to help you move forward and become everything he's created you to be. And so that's this incredible message that we have. Come as you are, don't stay as you are. And our tendency as human beings is towards following Jesus in most areas of our life, but we still kind of want to hold on to some other things that we think will ultimately make us happy. And Jesus is begging for us to give him full control, to surrender every part of our life to him, because when we put our trust in the one who created us, the one who loves us, we actually find lasting fulfillment and satisfaction. So just to bring us up to speed on where we've been the last couple of weeks, we kicked off this series and said, this is going to be a series about idolatry, and the whole place cheered. It was awesome. Uh, no. Nobody, nobody uses idolatry on their day-to-day basis, right? It's not like, oh, Lord, help my idolatry today. But we basically, idolatry is this, we borrowed this definition from Tim Keller, says this, anything you seek to give you, what only God can give you. Anything you seek to give you, what only God can give you. So all of us have these longings inside of us, and we go, in order to satisfy that, I'm going to pursue this, or I'm going to chase that, or I'm going I'm to use this. And God's going, no, I want to satisfy those longings in you. And anything that we use to give us what God is designed to give us can become an idol. And we recognize at some deeper level, my problem is holding on to some things in life that aren't inherently wrong, that aren't inherently sinful. They're good things. But when I elevate those things to God, to first in my life, when I try to extract from those things something that I should only find in Him, it actually becomes a master. It actually becomes something that demands from me. It actually becomes something, the Apostle Paul called it the, the sinful nature. In today's verbiage, we call it addiction. It's the same thing. And while we don't often use that language, anything that we turn to to put our trust in to give us what God wants to give us can become an idol. So that was the first week we talked about this. And I want to encourage you, if you missed any of the first couple of weeks, go back and check those out online. But last week we talked about some specific gods that we tend to worship. And again, this is a language that we use on a regular basis. But in essence, when we point our devotion, our attention, the things that we sacrifice for, our pursuits towards these things, they end up becoming things that we worship. And so last week it was success, achievement, and money. That these things are not bad in and of themselves, but we can take good things and elevate them to the point where they actually become idols in our life. And so today we're going to look at a few other areas in our life that we're tempted to prioritize, tempted to put first. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah was written in the Old Testament. It's, a, it's the Hebrew scriptures. It's specifically dealing with the nation of Israel. And during this time, uh, there is a, a message from God through a man named Jeremiah, and God brings this message to the people. And the Lord sends him as a prophet with this message, and there's this striking metaphor that paints a picture that I think is really relevant for us today and some of the things that we pursue. So this is God speaking to the nation of Israel, and he says this, Yet my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. 
They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. Now, a cistern is something that they would dig beneath the surface of the ground, and it would be like a large basin that would collect rainwater, and they would use that for future consumption. And the idea here is that uh, he's saying, trying to find your happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment in something other than God is like trying to drink out of a broken cistern. It doesn't work. It leaks. It won't quench your thirst. It won't meet your desires. It never, ever satisfies. We cannot satisfy our eternal soul with temporary things. Last weekend, we talked about these gods that show up that are fall under this category of power, things like success, achievement, money. Today, we're going to look at a few gods that actually show up in what I would call the temple of pleasure. And the first one is this, the god of food. Now, you're like, okay, time out. What is that? Like, this is a church. What does that have to do with it? I got to tell you, 15 years ago, we started this church. We have never talked about this. Not one time. Now, hang in here with me because my intent here is not to make you feel bad about yourself. It's not to shame anybody, make you feel guilty. But we have to admit, we live in a culture that is dealing with some of the consequences of worshiping the God of food. I recently just heard a comedian say that uh, he said he was at a McDonald's and he was holding a 96-ounce Diet Coke and Googling the symptoms of pre-diabetes. And he said there was a guy that like stopped and like recognized him. And he's like, hey, aren't you this comedian? He's like, yeah. And, and he goes, I felt bad even admitting that because that guy was on a road trip. Like he had to stop there like he didn't have other options. He's like, I live 10 miles away. I could have gone home and eaten. And he said, he said, this wasn't, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm scrolling through Google trying to figure out the symptoms of diabetes. And he's like, and I think I'm right on the edge. Like, and it's not like the kind you're born with. It's like the earned kind. He's like, I put in the hours to get this. And we laugh at that and it's kind of like, wow, that's, it's a funny bit. But the truth is, that's not too far off, is it? There's an animated film called uh, Over the Hedge. It's about a small group of uh, woodland animals, right? And as the suburbs start to build up around them, they're left with this little patch of woods and they're trying to forage for food. And they meet this raccoon named RJ. And RJ points them to where they can get all kinds of food. It's called these creatures who are called human beings. And he says this in the movie. He says, we actually eat to live. They live to eat. And so they get over the hedge and they look into this house and he goes, look at this. He said, see that, that human being that they're putting food in their mouth? They actually call that a pie hole. <laughs> he goes, that's their term. And he goes, and then the, the human being itself is called a couch potato. And then he points to the phone and he goes, that is their device to summon the food. And someone dials and orders a pizza and suddenly a, a car pulls up with, of course, a pizza on top. And he's like, that's one of the vehicles where they transport the food. And then they open the door. He goes, that's the portal where they serve the food. And they're, they're sitting around the table. He goes, this is the altar where they worship the food. And suddenly, off to the side, there's an antacid commercial. And he goes, that's what they take when they've eaten too much food. And then someone's running on a treadmill. And he goes, look, that's what they do to remove the guilt so they can have more food. And it's just, it's, we kind of laugh about it. But we go, man, that's so true. This is the culture that we live in. Now, again, you, you got to hear my heart on this. There is nothing inherently bad or sinful about food. Okay, I like food. It's, not what, it's when we try to get something from food that we should be getting from God. It's when we try to get something from food that it was never designed to give us. When we try to extract from something that should only be found in God. And maybe you've never thought about it in these terms, but here's what you need to know. Americans, 
In the United States of America, we spend annually $110 billion on fast food alone. Just let that sink in. $110 billion on fast food alone. It's hard to argue that this isn't a big God in our culture. And before you dismiss this as something that, you know, the church shouldn't talk about, it's not really a spiritual issue, you should know this is a God that people have dealt with for centuries. In fact, in uh, John chapter 6, Jesus had just performed this miracle, and there's 5,000 men plus women and children, this massive crowd, and they're hungry, and they want food. And Jesus says, well, uh, you bring them food to his disciples. And they say, well, all we have is five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, start distributing that. And it gets distributed, and everyone gets fed, and there's 12 baskets left over. It's unbelievable, this miracle. And the people, as you follow this story through John chapter 6, they actually chase Jesus down to his next stop, and they actually ask him for more food. Give us more food. We need a miraculous sign, probably some more food. And the reason for that is they had elevated the provision over the provider. And so what's happening is they're saying, give us this sign, we want more food. And here's how Jesus responds to them. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And again, this feels like an unspiritual issue, right? Like, what does this have to do with following Jesus? But I can tell you personally, this is something that I didn't deal with until I turned 40 years old. I grew up going, you know, playing sports in high school, kind of the, the athletic jock type. And then I went to college, and you know like the saying, right, freshman 15. I was an overachiever, okay? Freshman 30, baby. Let's go. I was on the cafeteria meal plan, and they had a soft serve machine at where I went to school. And I was like, this is amazing. You can make a soft serve Sunday every day for lunch? Yes, please. And I experimented with big Sundays. And by the end of my freshman year, I had put on 30 pounds. And then I got married, and then we started having kids, and then I was a youth pastor. And it was just like, before long, all of a sudden, it was something that had become an idol for me, and I didn't realize it. I didn't realize the unhealthy relationship I had with it. But here's what I was doing. I was seeking to get something from that that I should have been getting in God. Turns out I had a pretty unhealthy relationship. And it's not because it was just so readily available and I just really love Butterburgers and Chipotle burritos, which I do. It's because I was getting something from food that I was supposed to be getting in God. Because here's what this God promises. This God promises comfort. And there's a reason it's called comfort food. It's because it promises to give you comfort. And so for me, for about 18 years, for 18 years, and some of you, like, you're like, hey, we just started attending here like six weeks ago. Here's, here's what you should know. Uh, in 2020, I actually lost 70 pounds. Now, you wouldn't know that. <laughs> Thank you. Now, you wouldn't know that, if you, but if you attended here in 2019, there were actually people that were submitting prayer requests on my behalf because of the sickness I was dealing with. They're like, the pastor doesn't look very good. It looks like he's withering away. Is everything okay? And then what they didn't realize is I was healthier than I've ever been. It's just that I had this idol that I was dealing with, and I never would have called it that, but what I was doing is when I didn't feel good about myself, when I had a stressful day, when I had a hard day, when someone criticized me, uh, when, you know, things were just difficult, I knew that I could reach for food to bring me comfort. When you do that, again, nothing inherently wrong with food, but when you do that, I was getting something from Chipotle and Culver's and pizza and Doritos that I should have been getting from God. Now, here's the deal. I still think those things taste amazing. There's nothing sinful about Doritos. Thank God. 
But here's the truth. The sin comes when I try to find and extract comfort from those things that I should be getting from God. And eating is good. The problem is that every gift God gives us can be twisted to lure us and to pull us away from him. There's an author named Frank Farrell who writes this, a large part of mankind's ills and of the world's misery is due to the rampant practice of trying to feed the soul with the body's food. And so we try to mask a deep, deeper issue with food. And let's be honest, you don't have to battle with the scale for this to be a God in your life. You, you could be just as obsessed with uh, quinoa and kale and, you know, tree bark bread <laughs> and still make it a God because you find comfort in how it makes your appearance and now you're worshiping yourself instead of God. So again, I just want, I want to remind us of this, that this isn't about shaming anybody. We want to keep the shame level low. But I just know this is something for me that I personally never would have called this an idol until a couple of years ago when I realized I'm actually getting from food something that God's been offering all along. This is how the Apostle Paul writes it to people in Corinth. He says, God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. And so when I was distressed, when I was discouraged, when I was feeling insecure, I should have been running to him instead of running to food. And maybe some of you might deal with that issue. And this is not to shame you. This is to say, man, there's hope. There's hope on the other side of that. And there's, if you're finding your comfort in food or in anything else besides God, it's possible that's become an idol in your life. Now, here's another one that we deal with in our culture. The God of entertainment. This one's awesome. Uh, imagine this. Imagine if people set their alarms five hours early to get to church every weekend, right? And you're like, man, I got to set my alarm. I got to set my alarm at four in the morning. Otherwise, I'm not going to get a seat. And you got to wait outside. And that, like, there's like a line out of the sidewalk. And people are camping out on Friday night to get their seats early, right? Because they want to get to church. And throughout the week, they talk about what happened at last weekend's service. And they're building excitement for this weekend's service. And there's all kinds of talk shows and, uh, you know, all kinds of radio shows devoted to reviewing last week's service. And, and building anticipation for this one, there's even a TV uh, station called Church Center uh, that runs highlight clips of church activities from across the nation. And when Sunday comes, the roads are congested, vehicles are parked as far as the eye can see, people are tailgating in the parking lot, there's portable grills and lawn chairs and like small satellite dishes so that they can actually track other church services across the nation until theirs starts. It's awesome, right? And then the service starts and everybody's on their feet and there's a bunch of guys in the front row and they only got that seat because they've been camping out since Friday. And of course, they don't have shirts on and they got letters painted on their chests and it spells worship. <laughs> That'd be crazy, right? And then uh, as the service goes on, people are looking at their watches because they're hoping it goes into overtime. <laughs> you go, that's crazy. But obviously, if you would substitute the word church and instead put in the word football, you go, yeah, we do that every week. We do that every week. Now, make no mistake about it. I love entertainment, okay? And I love uh, football. That's not a bad thing. The only bad thing is when you love football and you're a Minnesota Vikings fan. I mean, that's a hard thing. That's, that's just like a burden to bear, you know? But the truth is, I'm going to watch the Super Bowl tonight, you know? I, I'm hoping that uh, Matthew Stafford can pull something out of here and, and win a Super Bowl. But this isn't just football. It's not just sports. It's entertainment. It's Netflix. It's your latest streaming. It's your Xbox, your PlayStation. It's Facebook. It's social media. You love it. We love to be entertained. And listen to what King Solomon writes. King Solomon is this king of Israel who wrote, lived about 3,000 years ago. 
Uh, he's described as one of the wisest men who ever lives, and yet, in spite of that, he constantly tries to amuse himself. He says, I denied myself no pleasure. I thought, I, I just gotta, I gotta experience all of it to know, like, what is this life all about, right? And he kind of he kinda is caught in this sort of existential despair of, like, I gotta figure out, even in all my wisdom, uh, I, I wanna experience all the folly and foolishness and just every pleasure. And in one of his journal entries, we find this in Ecclesiastes, he says this, what do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, and then it hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. And then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. He's just like, right, again and again. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. Sounds like a fun guy, right? And what he's saying is this. He said, I tried to, I tried to amuse myself. I denied myself no pleasure, and yet the word amusement actually comes from the world of worship. Because amuse is a, a Greek goddess, and the Greek goddess was meant to inspire writing and reflection and artistic expression. And so uh, they were the gods of reflection. A muse was a god of reflection. And then when we put the prefix a in front of a word, it means lacking. And so, like, if somebody uh, is lacking morality, the word that we use would be amoral. They are lacking morality. If somebody is uh, apathetic towards something, well, the word pathetic actually means uh, to feel or to have a sensitivity towards. And so if someone is apathetic, it means that they're lacking in feeling or sensitivity towards. And so this word amusement, it actually means lacking in thinking or reflection. So to be amused means I turn off my brain. It's, where, it's why we describe it in our modern day as vegging out, because we turn into this sort of uh, vegetative state where I can just not think about the pressures of life. We're drawn to this because this God promises escape. Promises escape. It might be sports. It might be video games. It might be our streaming service. It might be social media. And let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But when they become our escape, they never fully satisfy and this God also encompasses something that I see a lot today. And if you will just permit me to dive into your personal life a little bit, because uh, I'm going to touch on a big God in our society for just a minute. And it's not meant to offend you. It's not my intent. It's not meant to be controversial. But here's what I see a lot. This God oftentimes looks like youth sports. Like, oh, okay, time out. Don't touch my youth sports, all right? You, you went too far, preacher man. Now, I'm not attacking youth sports because I played youth sports. I played sports all through high school. But here is a troubling conversation that I have with a lot of parents. My kids really just don't have a faith of their own. You know, it's, it's like we want them to follow Jesus and we want them to, the, the, this faith to take root in their hearts. And, but now they've graduated high school and they're living as young adults. And for some reason, our faith just never took root in their lives. It's not a big priority for them. These are often the same parents who are gone for seven, eight, nine, ten weeks at a time at weekend tournaments. Hey, hey, we're in the middle of a season, right? We'll, we'll see in a few months when the season's over. Now, I'm not, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad. I'm not trying to shame anybody, but this is the hard truth. And I'm not saying that if you miss church, somehow you're not going to be able to follow Jesus. I'm not saying that at all. But please hear me. Because there's nothing wrong with you sports. I think there's incredible, valuable lessons in sports. 
Things that have to do with teamwork and sportsmanship and overcoming adversity and all of those things are important, but it is possible that we have unintentionally communicated our values to our kids about who their God is by how we have run our schedules and what our priorities are. And a God is basically this. What are you devoted to? What do you give your time and energy and affection and attention to? And I think it's possible that their team or their sport or maybe what we see as their athletic potential has taken first place in their life. And this is what's so subtle about that. None of those things are bad in and of themselves. They're all good things, but when something that's good gets elevated to first, it becomes a god, and they never satisfy. Now, I can tell you this, because I played basketball, and I played school basketball, and I played AAU, and I, I played all these things. I can't tell you how many services I sat in at my church in Buffalo, Minnesota, wearing a basketball jersey, <laughs> because if we had a game on a Sunday morning, I missed that game. And my coaches just had to make the adjustment. And I would miss that game, and my parents said, but listen, you guys have a game in the afternoon. You'll make the afternoon game, but you're going to miss the morning game because we're going to church, and here's why. My parents wanted me to know, basketball is good, but it's not God. And I'm thankful for that. I was frustrated as a teenager, like, oh, which is like the universal language of teenagers. <laughs> and yet... I look back and I'm so thankful for that. And what happens is we elevate youth sports over faith environments and then we wonder why our kids don't have a strong faith that we want them to have. And I don't say this because I want to offend you or to be controversial. I say this because I love you and I love your kids. And I want them to find a rich and satisfying life in Jesus and enjoy the good things that life has to offer without being trapped by them. In fact, Jesus says this in John chapter 10. He says, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. And if we'll put our trust in him, what Jesus is promising to us is a rich and satisfying life. So please hear my heart behind that. It's not to offend you. I want your kids to grow up and become young adults who love sports, but who put God first. Because that's good for them. Here's the third one. The God of sex. Okay, 12 minutes left. Here we go. <laughs> One of our strongest cravings in our culture today is our appetite for sex. We have allowed it to define our identity. In fact, uh, these are just some basic statistics that we know from our culture today. One in five mobile searches are for pornography. One in five mobile searches are for pornography. Uh, there was a survey of 13 to 24-year-olds where they were given multiple choice uh, question to what do you think is worse for you, more unhealthy, worse for the world than viewing porn. And in 13 to 24-year-olds, they decided that uh, not recycling is worse than viewing porn. They're like, I mean, should you view porn? I don't know, maybe not. But if you're not recycling, what is the matter with you? Now, I'm all for recycling, okay? Don't get me wrong, but... Pornography rewires your brain. It's linked to relational breakdown. It's linked to affairs. It's linked to impotence. The use of uh, porn is linked to anxiety and depression and anger and self-loathing. And yet it's a $30 billion a year industry. Even non-Christians agree. We're getting to the point now where, where secular uh, atheists would agree that porn is very unhealthy for you because of what it does to rewire your brain. 
And the way that you handle your sexuality matters to God because you matter to God. And I want us to go through a few verses here together as we close in and we talk about this topic that really impact our area around sexuality. And here's why. It's not because God's like, hey, man, I was sitting around and I got these rules. I better create some people so I, have, so I can enforce them. It wasn't that. Anything that God says about that we feel is a rule or a guideline, it comes out of relationship. So it's because God created you and because God loves you, he's going, here's some things that I'm going to put here, some boundaries I'm going to put around this because I care about you and I want you to experience the best life possible. And here's what this God promises. This God promises excitement. This God promises adventure. This God promises th this thrill. But sex is good, but it's not God. And when we start to elevate sex and pursue it, it moves from good to God and we end up becoming a slave to it. It ends up becoming something that masters us. And we're going to look at some verses here in 1 Corinthians. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to a group of people in Corinth. And what you need to know about this group of people and, and how they saw the world was the main view, it was a, a sort of a mix of Greek and Roman empires that had come together. And this is who Paul's writing to. And their main view around this was something called dualism, which means this, my body is over here, my soul is over here. It's, it's a dual thing, and they don't touch each other. My body's just this empty shell. My soul is my soul. Who you really are is your soul. That's over here. And then you have this body, which is completely separate from that. It's just a physical shell. It's not who you really are. And so consequently, you can do whatever you want with this, and it doesn't affect this. And in Corinth, the largest temple was to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. And at that temple, you could go to that temple at any point, and, you know, seven days a week, any time of day, and you could have a religious experience, which means that you could have sex with a temple prostitute who was actually a woman in sexual slavery. And the reason I tell you that is that when you hear these words that we're about to read in a second, you don't go, oh, man, like, Paul, you are so backwards. Like, this is archaic. What a, we're in the 21st century, right? This is a progressive way of thinking. Like, no, let me tell you something. The city of Corinth was pretty progressive. In their own mind, they were pretty enlightened. And we live in a culture today where we look at sexuality and we go, oh, I think we got this. We're pretty enlightened. And yet when we look at what the Apostle Paul writes, I hope that this rings true for us. Here's what he says. He's writing to some friends about a broken worldview that they have, and he says this. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? And they're going, no, of course not. Our bodies are over here. Our souls are over here. They're not connected to anything. They thought their bodies are just shells, meaningless containers for their true selves. And Paul comes along and says, you're actually connected to something greater, something much bigger. You're connected to God's church. You're a part of the body of Christ. It's connected to Christ himself. And then he continues. He says, should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? And these two words, join and to become one, would have absolutely shocked Paul's original audience because they didn't think that way. It's not, that wasn't a part of their thinking. So they go, hold, hold on here, Paul. You're using words that mean like, like glue, like bonded together, like permanently united, right? Unable to be separated. That's not how we think about this. Nobody is uniting. Nobody is becoming one. It's just sex. It's just physical. That's all it is. It's just my body. And Paul says, that's because you don't understand God's design for sex. And then Paul actually doubles down on this thinking and he reaches back into the creation narrative and he quotes from something that's quoted throughout the scriptures, reaching into the creation narrative, something that Jesus himself quoted. And he says this, for the scriptures say, the two are united into one. 
And Paul is saying from the very beginning, God's design is that when you have sex with someone, it actually unites you. It bonds you. There's a, a permanent uniting or oneness created that can't be unwoned. You become one. Well, hold on here. I, Paul, we weren't looking for oneness, okay? This is just a temple experience. The body's over here, soul's over here. They don't touch each other. It's separate. All right, I wasn't looking for oneness. It was just a spring break. It was just a business trip. It was just a Friday night at the club. It was just a swipe right. No oneness, okay? More like one-timeness with no callbackness. Paul says that's because you don't understand the original design. You were designed to become one with one, not to become one with many. You were designed to become one with one. You damage your intimacy factor because sex disconnected from God's design over time actually causes you to become numb to sexual intimacy. And some of you know this from experience. And some of you know this because of your experience with multiple partners. Some of you know this because of your experience with pornography. Some of you know this because you recognize it's scarred you somewhere along the way. More sex with more people doesn't equal better intimacy. This is one area of life where practice does not make perfect. More sex with more people actually equals damaged intimacy. And Paul continues, and that's why he says this, the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. At the root of most sexual passion is a desire for love and acceptance and adventure. It's, it's where you're with another person and you are fully exposed and fully accepted. And there's an incredible bond that takes place in that. And Paul is saying the things we're looking for are found fully and completely in Jesus. That's God's better way. And that's why he says in the next verse, run from sexual sin. Run from it. Why? Any type of sex outside of marriage, Paul says, is sexual sin. And Paul says, run from it. Don't hang around it. Don't put yourself in that situation where you won't be able to say no. Save yourself from yourself. Why? And then he continues, because no other sin so clearly affects the body as much as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Now, what does that mean? Sex outside of God's plan is like no other sin. And here's why. Not because God views it differently. That's not why. It's not because uh, God views you differently. It's not because this is like the one area where God won't forgive you. It has nothing to do with that, but because of the depth of which sexual sin seems to have an impact on you and me as human beings. This seems to be the area that leaves the most scarring on our soul. This seems to be the area of our lives where we have the most difficulty forgiving ourselves. And if you, as a loving parent, love your kids... What would you say if you saw the scarring that was taking place? If you saw the hurt, if you saw the shame, if you saw the regret that comes from becoming one and then having that ripped apart and then becoming one with someone else and having that ripped apart, wouldn't you as a loving parent say, run from that? Don't do that. Not because I don't love you. Not because I don't care about you. It's not like I had this rule and then I bet it's like I better have some kids to enforce that rule. Because I already have a relationship with you, and out of that relationship comes this guideline of, man, because I love you and care about you, don't do that to yourself, because I'm for you. So Paul continues, don't you realize your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? Now, if you've ever been a part of church, ever heard this verse before, or you know, have any kind of background or experience, you're like, okay, I've heard this verse, yeah, that's great. You have to understand, for this first century audience, 
mind-blowing. They go to temples and worship gods. And now Paul's saying, you are a living, breathing, walking, moving temple, and God lives in you. It's a completely new paradigm for them to think about this. And the main message of the good news of Jesus is that God loves our world so much, and he gave his son to us, and now he moved in our direction. We don't have to go find him in a temple somewhere. He came to us, and now he lives in us. We are living, moving, breathing, walking temples. And God's spirit is alive in us. And Paul says, you're a temple. Like the temples you used to visit in Corinth, now you're one of those. And the gods that you used to worship, now this God is inside of you. He says, you do not belong to yourself. God bought you with a high price. In other words, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can't just do whatever you want with whoever you want whenever you want. If you're a follower of Jesus, because it's not just you anymore. The very Spirit of God lives in you. You were bought with a high price. What is the price God paid for you? He ransomed heaven. He gave his son for you so that uh, you're so valuable. God loves you so much. He has such great plans for you, such great plans for your future. And so Paul ends his teaching here with just a really simple, practical action step. He says, so you must honor God with your body. So in light of all that, in light of the fact that when you become one, you can't un-one what's become one, and that's God's original design, and in light of all that, in light of the hurt and shame that's caused, just here's the application. Honor God with your body. Well, what does it mean to honor God with your body? When you honor someone, you give them the respect they deserve. To honor God with your body means you recognize, God, you bought me with such a high price, and I want to honor you with my thoughts and my actions and my body. Every one of us can honor God with our bodies, no matter where you've been in the past. This is so important. I want you to hear this. God is more concerned with your future than he is with your past. So this is not a place to go, oh, well, I I blew it. This is a place to go, man, God accepts me as is. But he loves me too much to leave me as is, and he wants to move me forward. That's what we want for you. This is a place of hope and healing. But it also means that I... I don't dwell in the past. I accept what is, and now I move forward and allow God to change me. Married people, you honor God with your body through faithfulness and exclusivity in marriage. Sex is a gift to be enjoyed and experienced in a marriage relationship. And if you're not having sex and you're married, you should talk about that. You should talk about it because it flows out of relational intimacy. It flows out of emotional intimacy. And there, there could be an issue there if you're not experiencing physical intimacy on a somewhat regular basis. That should be something you should talk about. And you focus on relational and emotional intimacy. God's design for sex is that in a marriage relationship between one man and one woman, they would experience intimacy that would point them to the love of Jesus. That we recognize we have been fully exposed before God, and yet he fully accepts us. That's why Paul quotes again from the creation narrative. In Ephesians, he says, As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Single people, you honor God with your body, whether you're 16 or 65, whether you're single or single again, you honor God with your body by not having sex until you're married. I know that sounds archaic. I know you're like, it's the 21st century. I know there's like, it practically pursues you. I know that's not what our culture says. But I know God will bless you if you will honor him. Because our culture pitches sexual pleasure as like a rite. It's like a rite of passage and you have to experience it. And it, what happens is it actually becomes your God and it demands more from you than it will ever give to you. And you become addicted to that. And we're somehow led to believe that life without sex is a lesser kind of life. Jesus never had sex. 
And that's because he knew the design of sex wasn't to make your life more meaningful, but to create a bond with another person for life. And it doesn't serve you well to experience that bond with someone that doesn't happen for life and then have it ripped apart and then experience that bond and have it ripped apart. And because God loves you and because God is for you and because he knows the pain that can come with that, he says, man, don't do that to yourself. Sex is good, but it's not God. When we elevate it to first in our lives, it becomes a master that demands from us. But this God is the God who sacrifices for us and gives life to us. So let me say this, and then we'll close. If you're struggling in this area, because I know we talked about pornography, I want you to know this is a place to keep the shame level low. I personally have struggled with pornography. Early on in our marriage, it was something that we had to deal with and I had to work through. And I had to come to the conclusion that I was trying to extract something from an idol that I shouldn't have been. And we worked through that in our marriage, and there's freedom on the other side. But if you hide it, it grows. And I want this to be a place that is safe for you to say, man, this is my struggle. This is, this is I want you to experience healing because there's freedom on the other side. God wants that for you. So if this is a struggle for you, if, if, if pornography is a struggle for you, please come and talk to someone. There is no shame. There is no guilt. There is just freedom and hope and healing on the other side. We want to be a conduit for that. If you're, uh, if you're reflecting on your life and you're just going, man, there's, there's one of these things that you've hit on today, that kind of stings a little bit. That might be God's Holy Spirit speaking to you to make a change. Because these things are good. Food is good, but it's not God. Entertainment's good. Sports are good. They're not God. Sex is good, but it's not God. Will you surrender all of your life to him? Every area of your life. Will you trust him to give you a rich and satisfying life? Would you be willing to stop sacrificing for and chasing and craving and pursuing and trying to extract from all these other things that will never satisfy? Is it possible you're trying to drink from a broken cistern? Because what God wants is to give you a rich and satisfying life. And if you've never said yes to that, I want you to know you don't behave your way into it. This is what's so great about Jesus. This is, what, this is why the message is called good news. Because it's not, here's the things you have to do to get to Jesus. It's, here's the things Jesus has done to get to you. And so if you've never said yes, this isn't something that you behave your way into. It's not something you church attend your way into. It's not something that you earn through your behavior. This is an invitation that's been extended by the God of the universe to you to say, you know what? God, I trust you more than the things of this world. And those are good things, but they'll never be God things. And so I'm going to instead give you control of the steering wheel of my life. I want to do things your way. And if you've never said that, if you've never said yes to that invitation, I want to give you that opportunity. Just agree with this simple prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. I thank you that you've never walked away from me. Make me your son, make me your daughter, and help me to fully surrender my life to you and your way of living. And God, for every one of us who are doing our best to follow you, it's possible that one of these areas has unintentionally become elevated to an unhealthy position in our life. If that's the case, give us the wisdom to see it, and then give us the courage to act. In Jesus' name, amen.